You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on February 3rd, 2019. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are in a sermon series. We started it last week. The series is called, I Am a Member. And in it, we're looking over our new membership covenant, as well as our new vision and values as a church. And so each week, we're focusing on a different theme that sort of draws out a particular aspect of that. So last week, the beginning of the I Am a Member series was I Am Present and Active. And we talked about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and each of us individually members of it. Today, we're going to look at I Am a Disciple. Notice they're all going to start with I am. So that's, that's where we're going with this. So today is I am a disciple. So to ask how we become disciples or how do we act as disciples, first we should ask, what is a disciple? And that's a fairly simple question to answer. A disciple is simply the pupil of a teacher. Now discipleship, having disciples, having teachers, is something that's been around for a long time. In the Jewish tradition, they've had disciples and rabbis since about the time when God's people were exiled out of the the land God had promised them and sent away to Babylon. And the important thing about that shift was that whereas before they had the the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle as the focus and place of their worship for the whole nation, when they were sent away to Babylon, the temple was destroyed and they were in a faraway land. And so they had to ask, how do we continue to practice our faith in God when we're no longer in Jerusalem and we no longer have a temple? And so teachers started to emerge, and the teachers started teaching the people who were then thought of as disciples. And this was an idea that they maybe perhaps even imported from the Babylonian people and certainly from the Greek people, because you might have heard of some guys named Plato and Socrates and some of the other Greek philosophers, all of them were considered teachers and all of them had disciples. And so a disciple was simply someone who was learning under a teacher. And so the Jewish people had this with rabbis and disciples. The Greek people had this with various philosophers and disciples. But to be a disciple is to be a pupil of a teacher. Now, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in particular? We know that Jesus' disciples were called disciples. We see that word a lot in the Gospels in particular. And we know that they often called Jesus their rabbi, which was uh, sort of a title of respect that was given to 
teachers who had disciples in that day. John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. We know that St. Paul, when he was a young Jewish boy, studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel. So he was a disciple of Gamaliel, who was his rabbi. Now, one Bible dictionary talking about discipleship says that discipleship was based on a call from Jesus. You can see this in a lot of the Gospels. People like Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and some of the other disciples, they started following Jesus because Jesus said, come, follow me. So discipleship was based on a call from Jesus. And it involved personal allegiance to him, expressed in following him and giving him an exclusive loyalty. In every case, it meant readiness to put the claims of Jesus first, whatever the cost. Such an attitude went well beyond the normal pupil-teacher relationship and gave the word disciple a new sense. And so what that new sense of discipleship meant for those early disciples of Jesus, the apostles, is the same thing that it means for us. It means following Jesus at whatever cost. It means following Jesus whether we want to or not. It means following Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we read in the gospel today, we read about Jesus talking about a yoke. Now, a yoke is something that, that farmers use to tie a pair of oxen together so that they could pull something heavy. Maybe it was a plow, maybe it was a cart, maybe it was something else, usually a plow or a cart. And so the, the two oxen would, would have this yoke placed on their shoulders and they would pull, uh, push against it and that yoke would then pull the cart or the plow behind them. And a yoke was often used as a metaphor for the teaching of a rabbi. So the Pharisees had a yoke, which was their teaching. And Jesus talks about his yoke, and he says it's a little bit different. So he says in the gospel today, Come to me. Remember, as, as disciples, we are people who have been called by Jesus. So this is Jesus' call to us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, what's Jesus saying there? He's not saying that the Christian life is always going to be easy. Sometimes we kind of wish it was that way, but it's not that way. It's not that the Christian life is always easy. It's that Jesus' commandments are not intended to be burdensome for us. They're intended to help us grow, to help us grow in the knowledge and love of him, to grow into loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so while following Jesus is not always easy, it's always fruitful. And our souls are given rest when we follow him. I have a, a sign that I put in my office, um, and it quotes from St. Augustine. And St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So when we put a yoke on us that is anything other than the teaching of Jesus, our souls are restless because we're pushing against something that can't satisfy us. But when we put Jesus' yoke on us, when we follow Jesus' teaching, our souls find the rest that we need, that we're searching for, that we're longing for. And in that sense, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light because in him we will find rest for our souls. So in our vision statement, one of the, the three pieces of our, our discipleship process 
Remember, find God, love God, share God. The middle one is love God. And in this sermon series, we're going to focus more on that middle one than any other one because that's where we spend most of our life as disciples is learning how to love God more. That's the commandment that we read about in Deuteronomy and that I just spoke about with the children. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? That's what he says. He goes back to that passage from Deuteronomy. He says, that's what it means to be a follower of God, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. It trumps everything else and everything else flows out of it. So the question is, how do we learn to love God? And how do we learn, in particular, from Jesus? How do we put his yoke upon us? Scripture and prayer are the two foundational disciplines of the Christian life. And interestingly, they were also the two things that rose to the top as we did our values survey among you last year. And we asked you, what do you all think are the values of this church? And the two things that very quickly rose to the top as we analyzed the data from that survey were Scripture and prayer. Those are two things that we want to define our church. They're two things that we value as a church. And they also happen to be uh, the two foundational disciplines of discipleship. So that's a really good and convenient thing. So first, scriptures. The scriptures were always the first stage of learning for Jewish children. We have different stages of learning in our educational process today. We think of, of students in preschool, and then we think of students in elementary school, and then they maybe go to junior high and high school. Whether they're homeschooled or whether they're in the school system, those are kind of the stages of learning that they go through. And for the Jewish child, the primary stage of learning, or the elementary stage of learning, was focused on the law. And so Jewish children, the core of their education was scriptural. It focused on the first five books of the Bible, and it occupied the years from when they were about five years old until they were about 11 years old, kind of like elementary school today. And so what they learned more than anything else was how to follow God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, how to love God. And they learned that by learning the law. They would memorize large portions of scripture. They would learn all the details of the law. They would learn how to apply that in their lives. That was how they began their life as children. And their parents passed these things down to them, and they also learned from their rabbis. And then if they, were, uh, if they were really wanting to pursue that further, then they would go and study under a particular rabbi, and that would become their trade so that they might one day become a rabbi too and teach others. And so, like Paul, he went and studied under Gamaliel. That's that next stage. But every Jewish child started their education by learning the scriptures, learning the law. And if we want to be disciples of Jesus, it would make sense that we would spend time reading and studying the Bible, which records Jesus' own words and those of his disciples. So the value, as we wrote it up in our value statement about Scripture, says this, The Holy Bible is the Word of God, and it is trustworthy and true, providing us with a reliable guide for direction, teaching, correction, and equipping us for the work of ministry. That comes to us almost directly out of the passage from 2 Timothy that we read this morning. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Or another way to translate with that would be, All scripture is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit worked through the human authors like Paul and Peter and Jeremiah and Isaiah. The Holy Spirit works through them. 
And in their humanness, in their personalities, they wrote down the things that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write down. So the, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And then here's the goal, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the goal is Christian maturity. The goal is perfectly loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul sees Scripture as a major vehicle for helping us get to that place, that we may be complete. And so Scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, for discipleship, in other words. And so the way we flesh this out in our membership covenant is that we commit to engage regularly in the reading and study of Holy Scripture and the doctrine of the church. So that's two things that we're supposed to study. We'll start with Scripture. There's a, a collect or a prayer that we pray in the season of Advent that's all about Holy Scripture and its importance in our lives. And in that collect, it says that we are to hear and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. We're to hear the scriptures. That's what we do in, in church when someone stands at the, the lectern and they read the scriptures to us. We're to hear them. And that was the original context in which the scriptures were re- written. They were written to be read out loud. So we're to hear the scriptures. And then we're to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. Another simpler way to say that would be that we are to read, study, and meditate on the Holy Scriptures. And you can think about that kind of like your lawnmower. Yes, your lawnmower. If you've ever looked at your lawnmower, your lawnmower, if, it, if it's the kind that propels itself, it may have some different speed settings on it. And those speed settings are usually on a, a lever or a dial. And on one side of that lever or dial, it has a turtle. And on the other side of that lever or dial, it has a rabbit. And the rabbit, of course, goes fast, if you've ever read The Tortoise and the Hare. And the turtle goes a little bit slower. And so when we read the scriptures, we read them in three different ways, which kind of correspond to those three different positions on your turtle-to-rabbit dial. So first of all, reading the scriptures is what we do when we just pick up our Bible and read it. And we do that uh, in Bible reading plans, usually. I'm sure all of you have have seen a one-year Bible or maybe a two-year Bible, or you've seen some kind of a devotional that has different readings that you're supposed to read each day. And over a period of time, you get through the whole of the scriptures. It's a great way to read because it ensures that you actually read everything that's in here. And when you get to the end, it's good to just loop back around and do that all over again. Now, the the actual frequency with which you read the scriptures is not nearly as important as the fact that you regularly get through all of them. So whether that's two years or three years or one year or six months or even 24 hours, the goal is to read all of the scripture regularly over and over and over again so that we're always getting the content of God's word. This corresponds to the jackrabbit setting. So the goal of reading the scripture is just to get through it, to read as much as you can. And the way I like to do that is with a Bible like this that has no study notes in the bottom. It's just the text of the Bible. Because I find I get bogged down in the study notes if I'm just reading the scriptures. And the goal is to get through the scriptures so that I'm just ingesting them. I'm eating all the, all the word of God that I need. So that's one way to read the scriptures. But we don't read the scriptures just in that way. 
Sometimes we need to turn down the dial, actually regularly we need to turn down the dial to a middle position right between the jackrabbit and the turtle. And that's what I think of as study. We need to study the scriptures, which means that we dig into them, and this is where your study Bible or a commentary comes in really handy. Because instead of reading for quantity, now you're reading for substance and depth. You're trying to figure out exactly what did the original author of this passage mean, and what does it mean for my life. And so we read maybe just a chapter, maybe just half of a chapter, or a pericope, uh, which is a fancy word for meaning like a a paragraph or a a single unit of of scripture, maybe one parable or one very short paragraph of, of Paul's teaching. When we do that, we can dig in and try and get all of the meaning out of it that we can possibly get. And so that's the middle position. That's study. And then finally, we have meditate, and that's down on the tortoise position. And so on the the turtle position, we we go very slowly. Maybe you do this as a launching pad from your reading or from your studying, but you just maybe pick one verse, and you read it over and over and over again, maybe ten times. And then you put your Bible down, because after reading it ten times, you probably remember what it says, and so you, you say it to yourself a few more times. And then maybe you just focus on two or three words of it, and you say those over and over to yourself trying to just squeeze everything out of it. And this is a more prayerful way to read the scriptures. So it's not really a study mode. It's a, it's a meditation mode. And when I say meditation, I'm not talking about the modern concept of mindfulness meditation, which is akin to Buddhist meditation, where we're just emptying ourselves. That's not the goal of Christian meditation. The goal of Christian meditation, which we read about in the Psalms, is to meditate on God's word. That's in fact what Psalm 119 is all about that we read today to meditate on God's word. And so when we meditate, we put it all the way down on the turtle speed and we read very slowly and very prayerfully asking God to show us what it is that he wants us to get out of that passage of scripture. So those are some of the ways that we read the Bible. We read, study, and meditate on the scriptures. But our covenant also says that we're supposed to study doctrine. Now, what is doctrine? That's kind of a scary word. It's like a a big word It can feel off-putting. Doctrine is another name for theology. And theology is another way of just saying the stuff that we believe. The stuff that we believe as Christians. And so it's not scary. When you read the Nicene Creed, that's doctrine. Or when you read the Jerusalem Declaration, which is our statement of faith as a church, that's doctrine. It's not scary. It's not off-putting. It's actually quite accessible. And it's something that we need to study as well, in addition to Scripture. Now, doctrine isn't above Scripture, but doctrine and Scripture are both important, and we need to study both of them. Doctrine and Scripture are meant to go together. Doctrine always needs to be tested and proved by the Scriptures, so if we're coming up with doctrine that doesn't line up with God's Word, we have to throw it out, because doctrine always has to come from God's Word. But doctrine helps us to read the Scriptures— in their full context, making sure that we're not reading a passage from St. Peter and contradicting something from Numbers or Deuteronomy. So we we read scriptures as a whole. That's called biblical theology. And we also read scripture in line with how the church, how all believers throughout all times have always read the scriptures together. And that's what doctrine is. It's the church's understanding of what we believe based on the scriptures, and it helps us to stay on the rails in our beliefs so that we're not looking up one passage of the Bible and interpreting it in some wacky way, which I'm sure you've all seen some wacky ways of interpreting Scripture. 
when people just rip it completely out of context, it makes absolutely no sense. We don't want to do that as Christians, and so doctrine helps us to make sure that we don't rip things out of context and that we see things as parts of the whole. So how do we study doctrine? Well, Richard Hooker uh, talked about, Richard Hooker was one of our, our early Anglican uh, theologians. He was the second generation of Anglican theologians. So we had the early reformers like Thomas Cranmer. The second generation is Richard Hooker. And he wrote uh, something very interesting called the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. I know right now you're all pulling up your phones looking for it on Amazon because you're ready to read it. Um, the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Sounds very engaging, doesn't it? It's actually an excellent book. Um, but one of the things he says in this is that there are basically three sources of authority in the church. Sometimes, as Anglicans, we have called this a three-legged stool. But I don't want you to think of it as a three-legged stool because that's not the right way to think of what he was saying. I think it's better to think of it as a, uh, as a tower of authority. Okay? So the three sources of authority he talks about are first scripture, then tradition, and then reason. Scripture forms the foundation. So all the other stuff have to be based on that, and that's why it's not a three-legged stool. These parts aren't equal. They don't support us equally. Scripture is the foundation. It starts on the bottom. Then tradition or doctrine builds on scripture. And then finally, we have reason at the top. And so I like to think of it as we start with scripture, and then doctrine helps us to interpret scripture rightly. And if we can't figure it out from, from what's already been given to us in those two things, then we use our reason to figure it out a little bit further, to apply scripture and doctrine to our lives. In our culture, we tend to do it backwards. We tend to put reason first, and then we fit in doctrine, and then finally scripture as it seems convenient and appealing to us. But that's wrong. It's backwards. Because we don't interpret scripture. Scripture interprets us. So the Bible goes on top, and then we look at what we believe based on what we've already read in the scripture, and as the tradition of the church has helped us to understand it. So the tradition of the church includes things like our doctrinal statements. It includes things like the Book of Common Prayer, which guides our worship. These are all sources of doctrine for us, and they help us understand our faith and come to a reasoned conclusion about the things that we live in our lives. So we need to study scripture. We also need to study doctrine. And two great places to start studying doctrine are, first of all, the catechism. We have a wonderful catechism that's been put together for us in the Anglican Church in North America. It's about to come out in its second and final edition, um, and it's a great place to start. There's about 350 questions in it, and if you'll notice your calendar, there's about 350 days in the year. And so you can basically read maybe one question from the catechism every day, and you get a little bit of a dose of doctrine as you're doing your other study with your scriptures. And they help you understand things like the Trinity and the sacraments and what do we believe about who Jesus was. They're basic foundations of our faith, basic foundations of doctrine. They're very accessible, but they're also very deep. And they're filled with verses of scripture to help show how this doctrine arises out of scripture. So the catechism is a great place to learn doctrine. And also the prayer book. We guide our worship and order our worship according to the prayer book because the prayer book is one of the places where we hold the doctrine in the church. And so an old saying from the early church says that we pray what we believe. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. We pray what we believe, and what we believe is shaped by how we pray. And so when we have good doctrine forming our worship, 
this, the, the Book of Common Prayer is really scripture ordered for worship, it helps us to inwardly digest that doctrine and make it a part of us, deep down inside of us. It forms us as we pray it. So that's how we study. We study the scriptures and we study doctrine. But as we fill our heads with all of this knowledge of scripture and doctrine, we may wonder how to apply it in particular situations. And for this, we need to hear from God, and we hear from God through prayer. Our second value, as I said before, is prayer. And when we say prayer as a value, we say that God is actively involved in the world today, and he loves to hear the thoughts, needs, and desires of his children. And so we seek to be under God's authority, and so we pray in thanksgiving, making our requests known to him and seeking his direction in all that we do, in the way that we should go. So this is what it means for us to have prayer as a value. And when you look at scripture and prayer as our top two values, really the underlying desire is for this church to be under God's authority and moving in God's direction. And we do that by hearing from God, which we do in scripture and we do in prayer. So the way we work this out in our membership covenant practically is we commit to pray regularly for my own needs, for those of others, for the church and its mission, and for the concerns of the world. These are the kinds of things that we need to be praying for, and that's what we commit to praying for in our covenant. So how do we pray? What should we say when we pray? Jesus' disciples asked him that same question. A lot of rabbis at Jesus' time would give their disciples a prayer for them to pray so that they could learn how to pray, and Jesus' disciples were asking for that as well. And what Jesus gave them was the Lord's Prayer. We say it in all of the services that we do together, and it can be a part of your daily prayer. But it's not just a rote prayer to memorize. It's also a pattern for prayer. It teaches us the various ways that we pray. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God's provision. We pray for forgiveness. We pray that God would be glorified. And we pray lots of other things as well. And so the Lord's Prayer can be a pattern for your prayer. Another way that we sometimes think about different ways of praying is with an acronym Uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S. And I like to add another S at the end, so it's more like ACTS. A is for adoration. C is for confession. T is for thanksgiving. S is for supplication, which is a fancy word for saying praying for stuff that we need or that others need. And then finally, the other S I like to add is silence. It's the, the, the forgotten part of prayer, but we do a lot of talking to God in prayer. That's what we often think about when we think about praying. We also want to make sure that we're spending time in silence, listening for God's voice and listening for his direction. So adoration, that's loving God, adoring God, glorifying God, confession, confessing our sins, thanksgiving. We want to always be thanking God for his blessings so that we're not like the, the nine lepers who turned away from Jesus after they were healed We want to be like the one who turned around and gave thanks to God because there are so many blessings in your life that go unnoticed because we don't stop to thank him. So many ways that God has cared for you that you forget about simply because we don't stop to thank him for it. So we always want to be thanking God for stuff before we ask God for more stuff. And then finally, silence. One way to do all of these things is a treasure from our Anglican tradition called the daily office which involves morning prayer and evening prayer and can also involve noonday prayer and compline or bedtime prayer. 
And these are services of prayer from the prayer book that order our worship in a way that we do all of those things that we need to be doing. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and you can make sure you add in silence in there as well. On our family YouTube channel, Team Klukas, we have a video coming out this week, probably on Tuesday, um, where Carrie shares about the way that she does morning prayer with our kids as the beginning of our homeschool day. And we also end our day with Compline, or bedtime prayer, as our, our family form of prayer. I personally use morning prayer as my prayer discipline in the morning. Again, because it helps me um, have that balanced diet of prayer. You can think of it kind of like a prayer multivitamin. It makes sure you get all of the different prayer nutrients that you need um, so that we, we don't lean too heavily on any one of those, those disciplines, but that we do all of them in balance together. Um, so you can watch that video when it comes out probably on Tuesday. Um, but the other benefit, in addition to having all of that prayer multivitamin, is that it's also a built-in scripture reading plan. So if you've always wondered what scripture should I read, in what order, the daily office gives us that plan, and we print it for you in your bulletin every week. So if you look at your yellow announcements insert, we have a whole page that's dedicated to a scripture reading plan that comes directly from the daily office out of the prayer book. And then on the back page, you have our prayer list of people that we're praying for in our congregation. And so if you take that with you, you can stick it in the cover of your Bible and use that as a way to help you order your prayer and your study for the week, reading the scriptures in, in conjunction with all of us and praying in conjunction with all of us. There are lots of other ways you can do it. You don't have to use it that way. But it's a wonderful way from our Anglican tradition to cover both of your bases of those foundational disciplines of scripture and prayer. Now, there are other disciplines, uh, more corporate disciplines, that we also commit to in our membership covenant. One of them is to receive worthily the sacrament of Holy Communion as often as reasonable. Communion is important because it binds us together. We talked about the body of Christ being bound together last week. Communion is the sacrament by which we do that. We bind ourselves to one another, and we bind ourselves to Christ individually. And so communion is a way of renewing our commitment to Jesus and his commitment to us, renewing our union with him each and every week when we receive communion together. Communion also sustains and strengthens us in our walk with God. It's spiritual food that strengthens us spiritually, just as we need physical food to strengthen us physically. And so when we come together for communion, we're also praying together. And so you'll see that these corporate disciplines that we commit to are really the same as the individual disciplines of prayer and study, but we also need to do them with the body of believers, like we talked about last week. So communion is a way that we come together and we pray in this corporate way. So that's covenant point 10. Covenant point 11 says that we observe the feasts and fasts of the church set forth in the Anglican formularies. Anglican formularies is a fancy word that really just means we're talking about the prayer book and the 39 articles, which are a, a Reformation-era statement of faith, and the ordinal, which is the ordination services in the Book of Common Prayer. They also happen to hold the doctrine of our church. And so when we talk about the feasts and fasts, we're talking about the church year, these wonderful seasons of the church year that we celebrate together in church, and they can also help to govern our lives at home. And so while we often mark time according to a secular calendar with months like January, February, and March, and we think about February is the time for St. Valentine's Day, and so we have pink hearts and red hearts, and March is green because St. Patrick liked green, and that's when St. Patrick's Day happens, and then April is when the, the rain comes, so we, have, uh, we, have, we remember rain in April. That's how we mark our secular calendar, 
We can also mark our spiritual lives with the church year, which is arranged around the life of Christ, beginning with the nativity around Christmas time and the season of Advent leading up to it, then the season of Epiphany, where we remember how Jesus, that's where we are right now, how Jesus was manifested and revealed to us, moving into Lent and Easter, and then uh, ordinary time or the season after Pentecost through the summer and the fall. We can take those things into our homes and order our lives by them, especially in the seasons of Advent and Lent, and that's another part of what we commit to as members of this church. And then finally, covenant point 13, we commit to continue my instruction in the faith so as to remain an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ. We already talked about our commitment to studying prayer and doctrine, but we don't want to do that just in isolation. We also want to do that together. And so we commit to coming together to study together through things like sermons and classes. We have lots of classes that we offer each and every week. We come together and study together as our corporate form of that same discipline. We never want to stop learning and growing as Christians. When we stop learning and growing, it's a danger zone because there's always more for us to grow into as we learn to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our Christian walk is never perfected on this side of the grave. And so we won't be perfect Christians until we go to meet the Lord in heaven. But in this life, we always want to be growing towards that final goal. We always want to be growing in our love of Jesus Christ. We always want to be growing in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so we always want to be studying and praying both together and individually so that we can become more and more disciples of Jesus Christ, following his ways and taking his yoke upon us. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light and with it we will find rest for our souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church, and we thank you for these disciplines of scripture and prayer, both individually and corporately. We thank you for the ways that you're calling us to grow, and we thank you that you invite us into discipleship with you. We pray, Lord, that you would expand our hearts, that you'd help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you would strengthen us for the journey ahead, and that you'd help us to find the rest that our souls are looking for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.